What do you think of when you think of the word hope? You know, we live in a world that's pretty hopeless, don't we? A lot of despair, a lot of people who feel as if uh, there isn't a whole lot of hope left in their heart for this world, a lot of hope left for, you know, some people think there's no hope left for our country. Some people think that there's no hope left for us as believers living in a, in a culture like we live in. When you think about the word hope, it's a word of, it's a word of optimism, isn't it? Hope is a word of, of expectation. It's a word that looks forward with anticipation to the future. George Bailey, in the movie It's a Wonderful Life, you've seen this movie, right? If you haven't seen this movie, I don't know where you've been living for the last 50 years, but one of the greatest Christmas movies of all time. You remember George here in the movie, he, he, there, there's the scene, right? And he's talking to Mary, and he says to Mary, he says, Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and the next year and the year after that. I'm shaking the dust off this crummy little town off my feet and I'm going to see the world. Italy, Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum. Then I'm coming back here to, and to go to college and to see what they know. And then I'm going to build things. I'm going to build airfields, and I'm going to build skyscrapers 100 stories high. I'm going to build bridges a mile long, right? You, you listen to the words of George Bailey, and there's so much hope. There's so much expectation, big dreams, big hopes. But I think today, as in George's case, hopes and dreams often get smashed, on the rocks of, of life, right? You've seen the movie, you know what happens. I mean, this is George. He finds himself coming to the end of his rope, right? All those hopes and all those dreams have been smashed and there he is contemplating ending his own life. Life wasn't turning out the way it was supposed to for George and he found himself at the end of his rope. And Christian tonight, I hope that this doesn't describe us. Of all the people in the world, we should be the most hope-filled people in the world, right? You turn on the news, you, you get around people today, and, and there can be this sense of despair that can, that can impact us and cause us to have that same, live with that same sense of hopelessness and despair. But I want to encourage us tonight that we are to be the people of hope. Why? Because there is hope. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks, that hope is here. Hope is here. Not some you know, fairy tale Disneyland kind of hope. Not a fake hope, but a real genuine hope that you and I can have living in today's world. And what we see from Galatians chapter 4, what I want us to talk about tonight is that I believe that hope is here because, first, first what we're going to look at tonight is we know and we believe that hope is here because God knows when to show up. God knows when to show up. Galatians chapter 4, 4 and 5 here tells us that the time came to completion. When that time came, God sent his 
son. God showed up. You know, ever since the beginning of humanity, the beginning of time here on this earth, you know, you go back to the time of the garden in Adam, and Adam, uh, when God created him, man, the world was full of hope. I mean, there was, there was the, God had created all of this, and, and he, he, he brought Eve to Adam, and he said, hey, fill the earth, have dominion over it, multiply, right? Though everything was good, there was so much hope, so much anticipation, but by the time you get to Genesis chapter three, we know what happened. Sin came in to the world, and by sin came death. But you know, right at the very beginning, if you go back to Genesis chapter three and verse number 15, here's what we see, church. We see that God, right there at the very beginning, when sin came into this world and cursed this old world, that right at the beginning, God gave man hope. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God promised that he would send his son, that he would send a redeemer, that he would send a Messiah, that he would send a redeemer into this world, one who would conquer the seed, Satan, the serpent, excuse me, the serpent. That from the seed of the woman, one would come that would, that would crush the head of the serpent. And for thousands of years, God was working that plan for thousands of years. You read the front part of your Bible, the Old Testament. God was working that plan. And while it seemed at lo for long stretches of time that God was off somewhere else, that God didn't care, that God was off, does God even know what's going on? I mean, hundreds of years would go by and it would seem as if God has done nothing and said nothing. And yet... All, at the, all along the way, God was working his plan. And just when everything in the world seemed completely hopeless, God showed up. And that's what Galatians chapter 4 tells us about. And so hope is here. Notice a couple things with me from this passage tonight. Do you need hope tonight? Well, notice this. Number one, God showed up as planned. He showed up as Planned. It says there, verse number four, when the time of completion, when the time came to completion, right? So the idea there is that at just the right time, at just the planned time, sometimes in our hopelessness, we feel abandoned by God. Have you felt that way before? I've shared with you uh, that I have at times felt that way. And sometimes we can feel like a victim of chance. We can feel like a victim of, of bad circumstances. We may even uh, pray about it, but it seems like God isn't doing anything. You've been there, haven't you? I've been there. Seems as if, you know, where has God gone? What is God doing? But what I want you to know tonight is that we are never the victim of chance, we're never the victim of accident. If you believe in a God who sits on a throne and rules over all, then we have to always come back to seeing life from, from the perspective of God, from God's perspective, and remembering that God never abandons his people. 
Even when it seemed as if God had abandoned his people in the Old Testament, God never abandoned them. He gave them up to chastisement. He, gave, he delivered them over to their enemies because of their rebellion and their, their just constant idolatry and, and, and walking away from him. But he did that in love and he never abandoned them. In everything that God did up to this point, he always had a plan. And we have to recognize that, church, in our own lives. That the, the events of our life, that God is always able to take even the idolatry of our life, even the sin of our life, even the failures of our life as he did so often in the Old Testament, and he can use it for good in our lives. I don't recommend we go out rebelling against God, you know, hoping for that good because there's some hurt that comes along the way with that. But we can recognize that God, in his good time, always is able to bring good from it. I want you to notice, as we think about God showing up on time, I'll, let's talk about God's timing for a few minutes and how this relates to our life. The first thing is that God's timing is strategic. It's strategic. It says here, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, right? So all throughout the Old Testament, God was at work. Uh, numerous prophecies were given, right? Uh, the Old Testament prophets, man, they, uh, uh, they gave many different prophecies about the, the time, the place where the Messiah would be born, uh, numerous circumstances around that, who would give birth to the, to the Messiah, God was speaking, God was foretelling all of that, and then at just the right time, God gives his son into the world. You know, when you, when you give a special gift, don't you want the timing to be just right? Don't you? I mean, my wife and I were engaged back in 1991, and uh, we got engaged in Atlanta, Georgia. We were going to college in, uh, in Chattanooga, and we went down to the Peachtree Plaza down in downtown Atlanta, and uh, there's a revolving restaurant at the top there, and that's where we got engaged. I wanted the timing, right? It was all about the timing and the place at the right time and the right, no, no guy takes his, his girlfriend down to McDonald's and over some fries figures, hey, there's a good time right here. I'll just, hey, would you marry me, right? No, it's all about the timing when you pop the question. Well, understand something. God spent thousands of years, thousands of years preparing the stage for his son to come into this world so that everything would be just right. In fact, in the Greek language, the word time here in verse number four, there's two different Greek words that are used for time. The first one talks about an opportune time, like seizing an opportunity. The second word that's used, which is the word that's used here, is chronos, and it, it describes an orderly progression of events, something that follows this proper sequence 
that builds up and that leads to exactly the right time. And that is the, the word that, that Paul uses here in Galatians chapter four. And it indicates to us that God didn't decide at the spur of the moment that now's a good time to send Jesus into the world. No, this was, this was building over thousands of years. God had orchestrated all of these events so that at just the right time, Jesus would come into the world. So let's talk about that a little bit, how, how it was strategic. Well, the time was right, first of all, culturally. Culturally. I'm going to give you a little bit of history tonight. In 350 B.C., Alexander the Great, you've heard of Alexander the Great, he was born. If I, I've been reading through the book of Daniel, and you actually see Alexander the Great in Daniel's prophecies, Okay, uh, Daniel talks about this shaggy goat. The shaggy goat in, in Daniel chapter eight, go back and read it. This was 200 years before Alexander, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was the shaggy goat in Daniel's prophecy. Well, Alexander the Great conquered the known world in 12 years and brought tremendous changes to Europe and the Middle East. Greek philosophy, institutions, art, drama, literature, architecture, and thought uh, advanced the culture under Alexander the Great. But the greatest contribution that the Greeks made was the Greek language. The Greek language was the most precise, the most descriptive of all the ancient languages. And it became the universal language. It became the language that everyone read, that everyone understood. It was the language of writing and commerce, and it was the second language to all people. It was the language of the common people. And 350 years after Alexander, all the way into the first century, the Greek language was still the great standard of language that was spoken. Well, why was that important? Well, in 280 BC, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. Perhaps you have heard of it. But the language was so important. Our New Testament was written in the Greek language. It was absolutely necessary to have a language like Greek. It wasn't an accident. God was preparing the way through a guy called Alexander the Great. The timing was also strategic when it came to politics. While the culture was still feeling the impact of Alexander and the Greeks, the Romans took over. And uh, they divided uh, the declining territories of Alexander that he had conquered. And this thing called the Pax Romana uh, became... The thing, it was enforced peace. Uh, for the, for the, only the, the second time in Roman history, the doors of the temple of the god Janus, which was the god of war, that the temple doors were closed. There was no war after Rome had conquered the known world. The Romans then built a vast network of incredibly efficient and expertly engineered and easily navigated roads. Over 55,000 miles of roads the Romans built, ensuring the swift movement of goods and soldiers and information across the empire, as well as the spread of the gospel. So you had a language, 
you had roads, you had peace, and now the gospel in the first century is able to move. There's peace so that Jesus could be born and that Jesus could, could teach and Jesus could move freely uh, in Palestine. All of that, it was just perfectly engineered, perfectly strategically done by God. He prepared the way. The timing was also right spiritually. The Jews were finally ready for the one true God. You go all the way back to 2000 BC with Abraham. In the midst of a polytheistic culture, Abraham had an understanding of the one true God. And he passed that on to Jacob, uh, uh, all the way down through Isaac and Jacob and to the 12 tribes. But you know what happened. All throughout there, those guys uh, were, were turning to idols, right? They were, their wives were worshiping idols. And you get to King David and then, then Solomon. And he took all of these wives and they brought all of their false gods building shrines and that became a nemesis to the children of Israel where, where they were setting up these altars and the people were turning to idolatry away from the true God. But during the 6th century BC, the Babylonians led captive Judah. That was under Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, uh, there in the furnace of Babylon, the Jews finally began to cling to and identify the one true God of Abraham, which increased under the Persians. And by the end of the exile, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament as we call it today, were, co were collated into the canon. But while they paid little attention to God and his law, you know what they did? They then took it to extremes. And by the time Jesus shows up, they have 613 extra rules that they have tacked on to God's commandments. All of these do's and don'ts. All of these legalistic rules. And so the Jews were just ripe, pregnant, crying out, spiritually ready at last. But not only were the Jews prepared, but the Gentile world was prepared as well. Because what had happened was when the Jews were, were exiled, the, the dispersion of the Jews into Gentile regions, what it did was it imported the Old Testament, it imported monotheism out into the Gentile areas and synagogues were built there and there became these people called proselytes. These were Gentiles who began hearing about the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and began be becoming believers in the one true God. Athens was in the late afternoon of its glory. The gods of the Greeks and, and the Romans no longer could command blind allegiance by the masses. Education, philosophy, and art created these desires that, that could not be filled. Athens could produce the greats like Aristotle and Socrates. Rome could produce the greats such as Cicero and Julius Caesar, but the best man was not enough. What was going on? Nothing, nothing, nothing could fill this God-shaped vacuum in the hearts of mankind. God was preparing people and the world for Jesus, the, the answer, the Messiah, to come into the world. None of the things that, that these great cultures had produced could provide meaning to life. 
None of them could provide a way of, of lasting forgiveness. They couldn't answer the big three questions in life, like where did I come from and why am I here and where am I going? So the stage was set perfectly. The time was absolutely right. Culturally, politically, spiritually, God showed up right on time. What does this mean for us? Here's what it means. Here's what it means. I'll skip down to this. God's timing is always strategic. That means God's timing is never premature. Now just think about that in the context of your own life. God's timing is never premature. We, we've talked about this as a church. I, I would like for God to move quicker than he most often does in my life. Wouldn't you? But you know what? God's timing is never premature. We would, like him, we would like for it to be that way, but God never shows up a moment too early. He shows up right on time, meaning he's never in a hurry. He's, he's not been gone. He, it's not that he hasn't been doing anything, but he's not in this, he doesn't work by the same clock the same time frame that you and I work in. His timing's never premature. Also, his timing is always punctual. He never shows up in a hurry, and he never shows up late. His time is always perfect. He always shows up on time. Church, listen, can that give you hope tonight? I hope it does. That ought to give you hope in your own life with whatever you're dealing with that you can know that God knows what's going on and he's not, he's not in a hurry. He's not going to show up late. He is at work and he works oftentimes without any knowledge of us knowing what he's doing. But we can still trust in him. Why? Because he's God. His timing is strategic. Secondly, his timing is always sovereign. What does this word sovereign mean? It's been hijacked today by certain theological circles. The word sovereign has been, we've been led to believe that the word sovereign means that, that God is in control of everything. That God, that God determines everything. That God meticulously and unchangeably has determined everything that happens. Look, is God in control? Is God on the throne? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. But what I want us to understand is that the word sovereign doesn't mean that God controls everything. It means that God rules everything, that God can rule however he sees fit, that he's on the throne and he can do whatever he wants. He's sovereign. You know, from man's point of view, from my point of view, from our point of view, it could appear to us that culture and fate, you know, propelled Jesus, that, that it was all of these external things that we just mentioned, that somehow those things were really what made the time ripe for Jesus to come. But what we have to see is behind the veil. We have to recognize that it was God bringing all of these things about, that God sovereignly ruled in time, and he was able to control events as he wished to bring about his perfect plan. His perfect plan. A couple things. God is the sovereign clock inventor. 
You know that, right? God invented time. He invented time. Who knows better about timing than the inventor of time himself? We get impatient with God's timing, don't we? We get in a hurry. Sometimes we attempt to fix or manage things on our own. And when we do that, we try to become an unauthorized manufacturer of time. We try to make our own time frame. And that's not, that's not our job. God is the creator of time. Time only exists because God created. So God is the sovereign clock inventor. He's also the sovereign clock setter. What's that mean? Well, the scripture emphatically declares that God rules in time. Isaiah 46. Isaiah says, I declare the beginning from the end. And from long ago, what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. David acknowledged God as the sovereign clock setter of his life. He says in Psalm 31, my times are in your hands. Do you recognize that your times, your life is in God's hands? Solomon recognized this. In Ecclesiastes 3, he says uh, that God has made everything appropriate in its time. And the apostles recognize this. This is in Acts 17. They say, for one man, uh, from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries of where they live. You following me? You see that God is on the throne this gives us hope, church. It gives us hope to know that, look, I don't have to control time. I, I don't have to try to manipulate time. I don't have to get God to work on my time frame. God knows best about time, and he knows the best for my life, and I can trust him that he has time under control. He knows me better than I know me. He knows everything there is to know, not only about the past, my past, your past, all the past, but about the present and about the future. And there are things we just don't know. I don't know everything, nor do you. But God does. God does. He knows. He knows. You know, there are times when we might feel like we're ready for certain things. But he knows better, right? There are th times that we may think that we know it's best. But would you agree with me tonight? God knows better. He knows better. There are times that we may think that we have the right answer. God knows better. There are times when we may think that we're prepared, that it's time. But you know what? God always knows better. So what do we do? We need to learn to trust his omniscience. We need to trust that God is the sovereign clock inventor, the great clock setter, and he's also the, the sovereign clock keeper. Have you ever noticed this in the life of Jesus? Early in the life of Jesus, as you read the Gospels, how often we would read the words, you know, the time hasn't come yet. You familiar with this? You read the Gospels, right? The time wasn't, uh, the time wasn't fulfilled. The Jesus would say the time hasn't come. For instance, Mark chapter 1, verse 15 he says, uh, the time, is, the time uh, is fulfilled and the good and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good 
news, right? The, the kingdom had come. Whose time was it? It was the Father's time. In John chapter 7 and verse 6, Jesus' brother encouraged him to go down to Jerusalem and perform some miracles. But Jesus says, my time hasn't arrived yet. In John chapter 7 and verse 30, Jesus' enemies try to seize him, and they're unable to do so. And the Bible says that they couldn't seize him because his hour had not yet come. Whose time? God's, God's timing. But after the upper room experience, have you noticed that the language changes? You read then the time has come. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. In Mark chapter 14, to his disciples, Jesus says, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus says to those who come to arrest him, this is your hour, the dominion of darkness. And in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, when Jesus goes to the cross, it says that while we were still sinners, at the right time, Christ died for us. What's, what's all that say? What does that say to us? What it ought to say is that if God ruled during the time of the Old Testament, if God ruled time in the time of Jesus' life, that we should trust that God continues to rule time today. Time is in God's hands. God keeps the clock. Don't mistake God's patience for his absence, right? Sometimes God is just being patient. Sometimes God is just giving us some time to repent <laughs> and to turn back to him. Don't, don't mistake that if, if God's giving you time, that it doesn't mean that, you know, it's going to continue on and on and on. Maybe this is a time when God is calling, he's, he's, he wants to work in your life. And so allow him that. Allow his spirit. Listen to his spirit. Let him work in your life. But one of the most useless things we can try to do is try to speed God up. Right? I, have you ever been in God's waiting room of life? <laughs> We've all been there. Don't you hate waiting rooms? I love going to the doctor, right? You show up 15 minutes early like they want you to, and then you sit out there for like 30 minutes and then you leave that waiting room and you go into the, the room where you're going to be examined. And you sit in there. It's like the second waiting room. I hate waiting rooms. I don't like to wait. And sometimes we find ourselves in God's waiting room. And when we find ourselves there, we're only going to have peace if we trust that God knows and that now is the time for us to wait and to wait for him to work as he sees fit. So God's timing is strategic. It's always sovereign. And I think it's also surprising. It's also surprising. You know, you think about the Christmas story. I was reading this this week. Luke chapter two, Joseph goes down from the town of Nazareth, right? He's going to Bethlehem and he's going to be registered with Mary who's engaged to him. She's pregnant. And while they're there, the time came for her to give birth. Have you ever thought about how bad the timing was on all of that? Right? I mean, if, we had, if you could have a conversation with Mary, hey, Mary, take me back to when, you know, the, the manger and Bethlehem and all that. Talk, 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 walk with me through that. You know, I don't think that she would say, oh, it just all worked out so wonderfully. It was just all perfect timing. 
I mean, think about all of the circumstances. Caesar Augustus making this decree that requires Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem. Do you understand that that journey was a 65-mile journey for them? It was going to take four or five days with a woman who's nine months pregnant. You with me, guys? Right? If you had a pregnant woman, wife, you know, bad timing. But yeah, that's the Caesar, the the decree, that's what they had to do. And then they, they make this journey and they get there. And because of the decree and because everybody's traveling and going back to their birthplace, there's no, there's no hotel rooms. There's no place for them. Can't, can't you hear the conversation right now, guys? Right? Mary's like, so you didn't think to like go on hotels.com and book a room? You, you didn't think about, you know, the fact that we were, I'm, I'm pregnant and I'm going to need a place to stay. I mean, you, you didn't check in with doctors. I mean, what's going on, Buster? I mean, find us a room. I mean, you can hear it, right? This was bad timing. And the fact that, that not only all of these circumstances, but then you, you factor in the fact that they're not married. They're, they're engaged, Right? This is the, the fact that she is pregnant in a culture that this was a, this was a big taboo. This was a terrible thing, and they're traveling, and they're going to have this baby. I mean, this couldn't have been worse timing. And Joseph, don't you think when the angel came to Joseph and told, jo- told Joseph that, that she was pregnant and that he needed to, to name the baby Jesus, don't you think that came as quite a surprise to Joseph, of course it did. You see, there was nothing that says perfect timing about all of this, and yet, we sit here 2,000 years later and we say, wow, that was all perfect timing. Because the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem, and, and they had to get, somehow, they had to get him from Nazareth over to Bethlehem. I mean, all of it worked out perfectly. And what I'm getting at is this, where we, from our little perspective of where we're standing right now in life, trouble, circumstances, problems, they never seem like good timing, right? Whoever ends up in the hospital and says, you know what, this is just, if, it couldn't have happened at a better time. <laughs> Nobody says that. Nobody does. And yet, Is God's timing never wrong? I think what we need to do is, this is something I've, boy, I really try to work at, is seeing life, seeing time through a lens, seeing time as this, a piece of a puzzle, you know? That our circumstances here today, whatever we're going through, it's just one piece of the puzzle. I can't see the whole puzzle, but the more pieces you get, right, the more pieces you start getting and collecting and putting together, the more you see a picture of what God is doing. You know, as a church, we've been, we've been taking all these pieces, these puzzle pieces that God has led us through. We've been putting them together, and as you stand back, the longer that we put, you see these pieces come together, the more you, you can kind of develop a picture like, oh, that's what Maybe that's what, that's what the picture is supposed to look like. That's what God is doing. If we would learn to, to see 
our circumstances, just like those little pieces of a puzzle and recognize that God is making a masterpiece and that today is just one piece of that puzzle. It can help us to learn to trust him and it can help us not to to resort to despair and hopelessness, but to hope in God and to know that God is working out a plan. And so what do we do? What do we do when God's timing seems less than perfect? Well, I like what David says. He says, rest in God alone, my soul, for my hope comes from him. Trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart before him. God is our refuge. What do we do? We hope calmly and confidently and continually in God, no matter what our circumstances are in a moment. Look at this quote. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. You know that it was out of the hassle that hope was born. Out of the hassle of all what happened to Mary and Joseph, it was out of the hassle of all of that that Jesus Christ came into this world. Hope was born. And so Christmas reminds us that God works all things together for good. So God showed up at just the right time all within his plan. Secondly, God showed up in person. My next few points are a lot quicker than my first one, all right? Help you with that. God showed up in person. Three things I want you to just think about here. And that is, first of all, that Jesus came to us. Secondly, that Jesus became us. And third, that Jesus overcame for us. He came to us, right? That's what we're talking about. That's what Christmas is all about, that Jesus Christ stepped down from the throne of heaven, the glories of heaven, and he entered into this world. He came to us, why? So that he could become one of us. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter four. He says, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So God sent his son, that's Jesus came to us. He was born of a woman. That's Jesus became us. And he was born under the law. (coughs) That is that Jesus overcame for us. He took on him the curse of the law. He bore our sins in his body. And in doing so, he overcame sin and death for us. That has to give us hope. That has to give us hope. You know, when, you, when you're down and out and you're wondering where God is and what's going on in your life and you feel despair and hopelessness, stop and go back to what Jesus did for you. What he did for you. I've shared this with you many different times and I'll just share it briefly. There, a time of, of despair and, and hopelessness in my life one morning, I finally, I, I'm reading my Bible, I'm sitting at my dining room table, and I, I happen to be in John, Jesus is on the cross. And I was having a hard time praying for quite a long time at that point, for months. And as, I'm, as I would pray during that time, I would think, I can't, I can't trust you. I can't trust you, you abandoned me, you let me down. And that morning, sitting at my dining room table and seeing Jesus on the cross in my mind from that passage of scripture, it's as if Jesus was saying, you you don't think you can trust me? I gave my life for you. I gave everything for you. 
You know, we face hopelessness and despair. If we will go back to remembering that Jesus came to us, that he became one of us, he didn't have to come into this world. I, I know that as human beings, it just seems like, well, what's the big deal? Jesus became a, became a man. What's the big deal? We're, we're humans. But understand that God himself, the creator of all things, took on human flesh. The Bible says that the angels, they marvel at this. They, they, they try to, the angels try to wrap their head around the fact that Jesus became man and that he died for humans. To, to the angels, it's, it's hard for them to grasp this story of redemption. And yet that is what God has done. And so when you, when you feel this sense of hopelessness, when you look at the world, when you look at your circumstances, when you feel like, where is God? Oh, has he abandoned me? Why these circumstances in my life? Stop and just remember who Jesus is and the fact that he entered into this world. He became one of us to identify with us. You see, Jesus gets us better than we give him credit for in our lives. I, I've, I've been there. I've, I've felt at times, God, you just don't understand. Listen, God understands. He understands. Jesus became one of us so that he would have nerve endings, so that he would have blood, so that he would have a body. He became a man to die for man. And on that cross, Jesus suffered. During his three and a half year ministry, Jesus suffer. Jesus understands what poverty is. Jesus understands what the struggles of life is. He lived through it. And so there's nothing in our life that we will ever face that God does not have an understanding about. He does. So what's making you feel hopeless tonight? What's when is that, Where does that sense of despair coming from in your life? Remember that Jesus came to us and became one of us so that he could overcome for us. And then third, I'll give you this and we'll be done. God showed up with a purpose. He showed up with a purpose. So Galatians 4, when the time came to completion, right? God showed up with a plan. God sent his son, born, under, uh, born of a woman, born under law. That's, God showed up in person. And then verses five through seven, he showed up with a purpose. What is the purpose? To redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. So Jesus coming into this world, what was his purpose? Well, first of all, to break shackles, to break shackles. Secondly, to purchase salvation. And third, to adopt sons. And when you, when you piece these together, we see that, that Jesus came into this world to break the shackles of our sin so that we could be saved and so that we could be adopted as a child of God. Church, are you a believer tonight? Have you been saved? Listen, the, the shackles have been broken for you. They're broken. Jesus did that. He did that. And if he's broken those shackles, if, if he has saved you, you are now a child of God. A child of God. Do you recognize who you are in Jesus Christ? And what, you're, what the privilege of being a child of God means? 
He's your father, Abba, Father. That, that word Abba, it means Father. And that we can cry out to him, that we can call out to him in whatever despair or hopelessness that we are facing, that we can cry out to him, Father, Abba. And he hears us. And he loves us. And he, he, he loves us so much that he's made us an heir with his son, with Jesus Christ. We sang tonight. I love that song, Emmanuel, how it just kind of, it, it goes through the whole Jesus story to the point where he's going to come in the clouds. And he's going to rule. And he's going to reign. And to think that we are going to rule and reign with him. The day is coming, church. Listen, the day is coming when all of the sorrows and distresses and heartaches of this life are going to be long behind us. Long behind us. And this is why we are to be the people of anyone else in the world. Let's be the people who live with hope. If you know Jesus, it's not hopeless. It's not hopeless. If you know Jesus, there is hope.